Would you join me in prayer, please, as we prepare to open the Word together? Father, it is truly a blessing to sing these songs, reminding us of the wondrous cross, the work of our Savior there, whose redemption has indeed paid the penalty for our sin. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus not only died, but conquered death and rose again, proving his worthiness as our Savior, as God, and proving that he is capable to not only save us, but to sanctify us and to help us to persevere to the end, that we might be a people who are holy, sanctified, transformed, conformed to the image of your Son, our Savior. May this indeed be our goal and our hope, even as we consider this passage here before us this morning. Lord, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the words of Jesus. We thank you for this Sermon on the Mount. We pray that as we consider his words to those first century listeners and to us here in 2016, we pray that you would teach us, convict us, encourage us, challenge us as we look into your word here together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm leaving you. I'm out of here. It's over. I can't take this anymore. I want a divorce. Well, some of you in our audience have either heard or said these words in the days and weeks leading up to a divorce. Words like these are among the saddest and most heart-wrenching words in the English language. They speak to the reality of broken marriages. For those who get married in the United States, 33% will be divorced at least once. And the numbers are not much better for churchgoers. In fact, 26%, one in four evangelical Christians will be divorced at least once. Now, with numbers like these, we can assume safely, I believe, that everyone here in this room has been touched by divorce. Husbands, wives, parents, children, siblings, relatives, close friends. We've all seen the devastating effects of marriages that have died. Now, while it is impossible to know the official wedding and divorce statistics of the Jewish people in first century Galilee, Jesus certainly knew people who had suffered the pain of divorce, but he did not allow this knowledge to keep him from addressing this issue during his famous Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about divorce in this sermon. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 31 and 32 this morning. And this passage 
is the third of six antitheses that Matthew records here in his sermon of Jesus from verses 21 through 48. And though these have been called antitheses, they are more like clarifications as Jesus provides instruction on the deeper spirit of the law, showing, I believe, the better righteousness, that which exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus calls for back in verse 20, as well as the way in which Jesus himself fulfills this law in verse 17 by his authoritative declarations. I say they're authoritative because Jesus uses a common rabbinic way of teaching when he says, you have heard that it was said. This is very common amongst the rabbis of his day. But no one dared to utter the other words that Jesus says in every one of these antitheses. They all had no problem saying, you have heard that it was said. And then they would go on to describe this Old Testament saying and maybe some of the oral law that had gone along with it. But they would never say what Jesus says next. But I say to you, only someone who has authority as God would dare to speak in this manner. And Jesus is that someone. Now these antitheses do differ a bit as we move through them in the passage. First two speak to our thoughts, anger and lust, while the remaining four deal with actions like divorce and oaths and retaliation and love. But I think it's helpful for us to see the connection here between this antithesis we're going to look at, antithesis we're going to look at this morning, and the one that just precedes it, the one we looked at last week. Because number three here actually continues the idea that Jesus began to discuss in his second antithesis. And let's recall what he said back in verse 27, where he said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. And then he continues his discussion to the command against adultery by the way he formulates verse 31 here in Greek. So he's really continuing on, in a sense, with this idea about committing adultery. Let me read verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So you notice here the connection with verses 27 through 30. In that previous section, Jesus said, if you lust, you are actually committing adultery. And we considered that text last week. Here in this section, he is saying, if you get a divorce, you are actually committing adultery. So the sin of adultery is actually at the heart of both of these sections. Even though Jesus here begins verse 31 with a statement about divorce based on an Old Testament text in Deuteronomy 24. We'll say more about that in a moment. So as we look at these two verses here this morning, where should our focus be? What is the main point that Jesus is making in these two verses? Now the temptation to get bogged down on questions about the meaning of the phrases in these verses the historical positions on divorce that have been staked out through the centuries, the particular nuances about divorce teaching that can be learned by studying other texts like Deuteronomy 24 or Matthew 19, the passage we heard earlier this morning, 
Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians 7. All of these and so many others can steer our focus away from the main point I believe that Jesus is making here. And that is this. Individually and corporately, as a church, we need to be committed to the permanence and beauty of marriage. Now stated negatively, we need to avoid divorce. Now in order to prove this thesis, I'd like to walk through this passage first of all, speak to the various issues that are here. We must do that as we walk through here. These are not easy questions and they're very much debated, but we need to address them. And then secondly, I'd like to speak practically to the ways in which we can commend marriage on the one hand and avoid divorce on the other. So let's look at the interpretation of these verses. And we need to make some preliminary comments as before we jump into the particular interpretations we want to look at here. We must realize here that we're not going to be unanimous this morning in what I have to say. I differ, I know, with some of my fellow elders on these points. I know I will differ with many of you who study these verses and have arrived at opposing conclusions. But I ask us all, let's be honest students of the Word, acknowledge the legitimacy of some opposing views while holding loosely, can we do this? Loosely yet unapologetically to the interpretations that we believe. I don't want here to, this morning, I don't think I will come across, trust not, as an angry dogmatic who bites off everyone's head who has a different view than mine. Nor do I want to be a wishy-washy postmodern who believes everything is right. Obviously, opposing viewpoints cannot both be right. So we must realize that heaven will likely be the place where we get all of this sorted out perfectly. We will not be able to deal again this morning with every possible scenario that arises when we discuss this issue of marriage and divorce. We know this. So many factors affect each individual situation, including issues like physical and emotional abuse, neglect, abandonment, and a whole host of others. So don't be disappointed that the scenario that you might be imagining right now or living out right now isn't specifically addressed. Wise biblical counselors abound who can bring God's word to bear upon your particular situation. Seek God's guidance here then in pursuing good counsel because as one author has put it, marriage is messy and divorce is naughty. That's K-N-O-T-T-Y. You know, like a knot in a board. We need the edifying ministry of the church to help work through all of these nuances. Now, how should the unmarried among us listen to Jesus? I remind you that there were unmarried listening to Jesus that day when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I think his congregation looked very much like this one. People in different stations of life, different situations. Young people who need this foundational truth as they look ahead to marriage are being addressed. Single adults who can encourage good marriages with their married friends and who can prepare for marriage if God so ordains this in their futures. Formerly married, who will likely not remarry, 
and who can encourage the married people that they know by their own faithful past and by their helpful and biblical spoken words. All of these are part of the audience and certainly are part of this one. Also in his audience and also in this one are those who have been divorced. And perhaps some among the divorced who have remarried. And maybe that is you this morning. And you say, what can I do? I can't go back and fix mistakes in my past. I can't go back and change what somebody has done to me. I can't undo a divorce. But I admit that I sometimes feel as if I walk around with a big red letter D on my chest. Well, let me assure you that divorce is not a condemnation to second-tier status in the church. When we trust Christ, all our sins and mistakes of the past, the present, and the future have been forgiven. And we can face our present and our future not with a D as clothing, but with the robes of Christ's righteousness. So please do not allow the guilt of past sin to keep you from the peace and the freedom from guilt that is provided by Christ in our salvation. Furthermore, you can work, those divorced amongst us who have remarried, you can work at your present marriage just as much as any non-divorced person can. You don't have to let guilt from past decisions keep you from trumpeting the beauty of marriage in the present. Nor do you need to allow guilt to keep you from giving good counsel to friends and family who may be tempted to pursue divorce in their present situation. So please take heart in the biblical words often sung from that song, It Is Well With My Soul. Words which apply to every one of us who have trusted Christ here. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. So your divorce is not bigger than God's grace. In fact, it is overwhelmed by it. So as we approach this passage, we confront four problems, which I'd like to address as we walk through it. Verse 31, we have right away a problem or something to consider, and that is the Mosaic Law. Because Jesus, when he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, is quoting here from Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. Now, what situation was Moses talking about when he made this declaration? I'd like to read the passage in Deuteronomy 24. You're certainly welcome to turn there if you'd like. But I think it's helpful for us to see what Moses was talking about because Jesus is quoting from him right here. So Moses wrote, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, by the way, that phrase, some indecency, is a really important phrase. We'll come back to that in a moment. So he finds some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife. So by the way here, Moses was assuming that a woman who had been divorced would remarry. And the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce. 
She's on a bad roll here. And he puts it in her hand, and he sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. What we see here in this text in Deuteronomy that divorce was indeed tolerated in the law. Correct? That's what the text is telling us. And Matthew 19.8, the passage we read this early, earlier this morning, reminds us there in 19.8 where Jesus is recounting this very account, this very section of Deuteronomy. He said, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Now from the beginning, that wasn't so. But Moses did make this allowance. So d divorce was tolerated. And it seems to have been tolerated because of some indecency. Now we know this indecency wasn't adultery, since adultery was a capital offense that resulted in death. So the indecency wasn't adultery. But it must be something in violation of the essence of the marriage covenant, something that would permit this husband to divorce his wife. Secondly, a second thing that we can see in this text in Deuteronomy is that divorce required an official written document. Thirdly, remarriage, like I said, as I was reading through there, after divorce was legally permitted if you had that certificate. So what was going on then in Jesus' day with regard to Moses' statement? He quotes it here, doesn't he? Well, they had become quite apparent here in the first century of Galilee, they had become way too permissive in their interpretation of that phrase, something indecent. In fact, it's pretty well documented that something indecent could be anything from burning the supper to not being very pretty. One commentator says, the impression that one gains from ancient Jewish sources is that divorce was relatively easy and was not considered a grave misdeed. Kind of similar, isn't it, to our day, our day of no-fault divorce. Very similar to the first century. So to summarize verse 31, what these Pharisees and what the Jews of Jesus' day were saying was this. You have, and Jesus says it here, you have heard that it was said that if a man wants to divorce his wife, he must, and I think we could add the word simply in here, he must simply give her a bill of divorce. So the people of Jesus' day were saying, that's all, you, that's all you need to do, just give a bill of divorce. And Jesus is quoting words that were used in his day for a lax and permissive attitude that had come in regard to divorce. So what mattered most to these Jewish people was not the grounds for divorce, which is what Moses had focused on back in Deuteronomy, but rather the necessity of giving the woman a certificate so she could be free to remarry. It doesn't, so, it doesn't matter so much why you want to divorce her, they were saying, as much as making sure that you're legal. Did you give her the certificate? You need to be legal. Now, how is this text so often approached in our day. 
Well, I think oftentimes it's looked at as divorce isn't that big of a deal. What matters is, do you have the permission to do it? Did he or she commit immorality? If they did, you've got your ticket. Your ticket out of the marriage. Permission, all too often, becomes mandate. Maybe someone seeking to talk to a person considering divorce might say, What? He cheated on you? Get a divorce. As Scott McKnight, a commentator in this passage, has said, Jesus prohibits permissiveness by well nigh prohibiting divorce altogether. So it is in your heart. So, so I, I want to ask this question then. So is it in your heart to love marriage like God loves it? Are you committed to having a marriage that looks like Christ's love for the church? I think these are the questions we need to ask. By discouraging divorce, Jesus is encouraging the modeling of the beauty of permanence in marriage. There's a beauty of permanence in marriage. Now I'd like to do, some, I'd like to do something a bit different. It's probably been a while since we've tried something like this, but I would like to ask if you are here this morning and you have been married 35 years or more, whether your spouse is with you or not, I realize they, he or she could be sick today or in the nursery or what have you, but 35 years or more married, could you stand, please? Well, this is a blessing, isn't it? These folks married 35 years or more. I think they point point out to all of us the beauty of staying together, the beauty of working out challenges and problems. I won't go around the room and talk to each of these couples, but I can guarantee they've had challenges, they've had struggles. Thank you, you can be seated. We should make marriage attractive. And I believe these who have stood, and many, many other couples amongst us, I realize, I thought I'd start at 35 at least, to show the beauty of the permanence of marriage. Let's make marriage attractive. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Now secondly, there's a second problem that we face in this text. A person who divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery, with one exception except for sexual immorality. All right, this is probably the toughest phrase in the whole two verses that we're looking at here this morning. What does that mean? I think it's helpful to understand a bit of the, of the um, uh, debate that went on here between some rabbinical schools. There was the school of the rabbi Shammai, was his name, who argued that the only grounds for divorce is sexual immorality. There's also a rabbi named Hillel, and he argued that any cause was sufficient in his followers. Any cause was sufficient, including burnt food, as I mentioned earlier. Now, Jesus sides with the more stringent group of rabbis in his interpretation here. 
Now, there are three basic views of, then, this phrase, except on the ground of sexual immorality. What are these views? Well, the first view, sometimes referred to as the betrothal view, is that, premarital, that this um, phrase refers to premarital sex during the betrothal period. And maybe the example of Joseph with Mary would be an example of this. When he found out that she was pregnant, what did he do? He thought about what? He thought about divorcing her. Okay? So that would be a possible meaning of this text. It's referring to the betrothal period. A second view is that this refers to incestual relations. And that's the particular type of immorality that is being addressed here. The third is that it refers to general sexual sin that breaks the marital covenant. Well, these are the three main views. I'm not going to go over each one in its pluses and minuses, but I'm going to suggest, as just in giving these, that the meaning of the Greek word itself lends itself most likely to this third meaning, general sexual sin that breaks the marital covenant. And we can see from chapter 19 that it was because of the hard hearts of people that this exception was stated. In fact, I think Jesus is even referring specifically more to what <clears throat> that indecency, we know that it meant a certain thing, not adultery back in Deuteronomy, but I think even here he's saying that it is specifically related to sexual, general sexual sin that might occur during a marriage. All right, that leads to a third problem then in the text. How is the woman here said to commit adultery? It makes her commit adultery. Obviously, she can't commit adultery unless she remarries. The assumption here is, is that she has to remarry in order for it to be possible to be considered an adulteress. And in that day, of course, it was expected that a woman would not remain single after being divorced. She would remarry. Thus, because her union with her original husband has not been justifiably broken. Remember, that's the, the situation that Jesus is presenting here. People are being divorced for any reason at all, and that is wrong. And so, because her union has not been justifiably broken with her husband, she technically remains married to him. Though she has been divorced, that certificate was, was printed out. Well, was, no, they didn't have printers back then. That certificate was written out and presented. And so she commits adultery with anyone other than her original husband. And this explains the last phrase of the verse as well. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, the assumption is that the divorced woman has been divorced wrongfully. That is, her husband divorced her for something other than sexual immorality. Thus, she is still married to her first husband and commits adultery with anyone other than her first husband. All right, problem number four. Is remarriage permissible after a divorce? That's a question that comes up when looking at a text like this. As I've already said, I believe an impermissible divorce causes both the woman and any future husband to commit adultery. However, it appears that a permissible divorce, one in which sexual immorality has occurred, also would permit remarriage, just like back in Deuteronomy 24. 
Now, this can be inferred as well, I think, from the words that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 15. There, Paul is talking about a situation where you have a lost and a saved person together in a marriage. And he says, you ought to stay together as much as you can. But if your unsaved spouse departs, let them depart. The believer is no longer bound to his or her spouse if that unbelieving spouse departs. Thus it would seem that there are two exceptions given, or there are two conditions, I guess, given for a permissible divorce. Now, remember again that from the beginning, as Jesus tells us in chapter 19, this was not the case. From the beginning, man and woman were to be married forever. Well, as long as both of them are still alive. But Moses did give permission for something indecent. And Jesus clarified this, I believe, by showing that sexual immorality was a legitimate exception. And Paul also provided an exception for a, what we might call a mixed marriage, if the unbeliever departs. Thus, if one is divorced on the basis of one of these two exceptions, he or she is free to remarry because they have been permitted to divorce. Now, we've walked through four of these problems in this text, and not everyone here holds to the interpretation that I have just given. I fully understand that. Some would say that there is never an exception to divorce allowance by Jesus because they take the betrothal view. Or another way that they argue that people should never divorce. There are likely others here who would say that divorce should also be permitted in the case of physical or emotional abuse, even though that permission is not granted here in Matthew or elsewhere in the Scripture. But I've sought to deal the best I know with this text as it stands here. So what kind of conclusions can we make from this interpretation as we look at these two verses? I think, first of all, it's very obvious. Jesus is against divorce. Jesus is against divorce. Divorce is always against his creative designs. Divorce is not God's will. One commentator has said, God's unconditioned will is that there be no divorce. But given human sin, divorce is sometimes a part of God's conditioned will as the lesser, as the lesser of the evils. Another thing we can tell in this text is that Jesus condemns a cavalier attitude toward divorce. Jesus is for marriage. In fact, his desire is that every marriage continue permanently until one of the partners dies. Now, remarriage after an impermissible divorce constitutes adultery. Therefore, any remarriage after an impermissible divorce is not allowed. Now, there is one occasion when Jesus permits divorce, and that is the case of sexual immorality. But this should never be seen as an excuse or as an exit strategy. It is permission, but it is not policy. It is allowed, but it is never mandated. In fact, I think quite the opposite is the case. I think Jesus condemns divorce in places like Mark 10, 9. There, Jesus gives no exception to his statement that no man is to separate a married couple. Likewise, in Luke 16, 18, statement about divorce there, 
includes no exception clause. I think we as a church and as individuals ought to support and encourage the permanence of marriage. That much is certainly true and non-negotiable. And that would lead me then to look at the section of application that we would make to this truth about the importance of marriage and commending it. So I would like to look first of all then with you at commending marriage. And then we'll also look at avoiding divorce. So commending marriage. I think we need to make it a point to honor those who persevere in marriage. I think we can do this in some simple ways. Attending anniversary celebrations when invited. Sending congratulations for milestones. By praying for the marriages in our church. I would encourage you I hope that one of your regular practices as a member of this church is that you take the church directory and you pray for the others in our church. And you go down through the list and when you get to a married couple, I hope that you pray that they will stay together and that their marriage will continue to show the love of Christ for his church. Pray for the marriages in our church. We can offer encouragement to those as we think about honoring those who persevere in marriage. We can offer encouragement to those who are suffering in their marriages. And we suffer for a number of reasons in our marriages. There may be physical difficulties that are requiring extra care that needs to be rendered to those uh, toward a spouse who is suffering physically. There might be indeed marital strife that we need to encourage those involved in a marriage like that, to stay with it. There might be relational challenges with children or parents. So with our words and our actions and our prayers, we can encourage struggling brothers and sisters to stick with it, to persevere in marriage. So make it a point to honor these who persevere. Secondly, I'd like to address our single adults and encourage you to pursue marriage. And, and, and to both genders, getting out of debt and becoming financially independent from your parents is wise. Pursuing education and training that is needed for employment and then pursuing, of course, gainful employment is important to be ready for marriage. Active participation in the ministry and life of local church is very important. To blossom where you're planted, where God has placed you. One writer said to the single adults in the church, run as hard as you can after Christ. And then look to your right and look to your left. Those are the people who are also running after Christ that you ought to be pursuing as you think of marriage. And to our single men, don't expect potential wives to line up at your door and then to knock on the door, maybe interrupting your basketball game or your video game. No, you need to pursue them. 
I won't take time here to talk about the qualities that you should be looking for in a potential wife. But there are many good resources, of course, available where these things are discussed. But I think that the single adults among us ought to be encouraged to pursue marriage. Thirdly, pursue a deep relationship. For those who are married, pursue a deep relationship with your spouse. I think there are four purposes of marriage that encourage this sort of intimacy, having a deep relationship with your spouse, four reasons why we should do that. I think, first of all, to protect yourselves, even as we reminded last week, to protect yourselves against adultery of the mind and body, to protect yourselves against divorce, to protect yourselves against an apathetic numbness or dullness that can suck the life and joy right out of this relationship that God created for your joy and for His glory. I have a multiple choice question for you here. How would you describe your marriage relationship as we think about pursuing this deep relationship? A, like watching paint dry. B, like someone scratching their fingernails on a chalkboard. Or C, like riding on a roller coaster with a blindfold on. Or D, like watching the sunset over a calm ocean while warm breeze breezes waft over you. If it's not D, you have work to do in pursuing a deeper relationship with your spouse. Another purpose for pursuing a deep relationship is to picture the beautiful relationship that exists between Christ and His church. And your marriage was designed by God to be that picture. And of course, I'm not just inventing this out of whole cloth, am I? The Apostle Paul made that very clear. I want to read the text because I think it is very significant in this regard in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There we have the fact that our marriages ought to picture this relationship between Christ and his church. A third reason to pursue this deep relationship is that we are to commend this blessed estate to the next generation. So men, do you love your wife so well that your daughters wonder if they will ever be able to find a husband as good as you are? I think that's a good problem for them to have. Do your sons see what it means to be a leader in your home and a lover of your wife? Wives, do you relate to your husband with respect and appreciative honor so that your daughters want to act in the same way toward their husbands one day? Do your sons see in you the type of godly example that will draw them to someone like you, someone who loves God and his design for the role relationships that he has established in marriage? 
and to both? Do your children see that you want to spend time together? Do your children see that you like to laugh together? Do, you, do your children see that you are the most important people in the world to, to one another? Or do they realize or come to realize that the kids are the priority in the home? Or that your job is the priority? Or that your hobby is the priority? You've probably heard it said, but the best gift that you can give your children is the gift of a vibrant and loving relationship, one that is solid and enduring and joyful and trustworthy. Commend this blessed estate to the next generation. And then a fourth purpose in pursuing this deep relationship is to mutually spur one another on to spiritual growth. Marriage is indeed a tool of sanctification. So allow God's Spirit to help each of you in pointing the other to Jesus and to His likeness. Now, we all, individually and corporately, must be committed as well to the covenant nature of love and to marriage as a spiritual union that has been established by God. Now, those among us who marry must do so believing that divorce is not an option that we are ever going to consider. And we must affirm that divorce is never the will of God and that it is permitted only because of the hard-heartedness of sinners. And these are the words, indeed, of Jesus. And we must not shy away from them. English pastor John Stott, who's recently gone to glory, said, Whenever somebody asks to speak with me about divorce... I have now for some years steadfastly refused to do so. I have the rule never to speak with anybody about divorce until I have first spoken with him or her about two other subjects, namely marriage and reconciliation. So in our private conversations, in our counsel and advice that we give to inquirers, are we committed to the belief in the covenant nature of marriage? and its permanence? Are we able to hold in balance the non-negotiable virtues of mercy and of righteousness when confronted with a failing marriage? You are to be merciful. You are to be a listener, to ask some probing questions, to walk alongside them, to reflect to them a supreme love for God and a love for neighbor. Now, this does not mean that you're going to tolerate sin. We are told, we are indeed to hold our fellow believers to the standard that Jesus established, that divorce is wrong. Now, this is indeed a tough balance to negotiate at times. Some churches are too merciful to the degree that divorce is even condoned or overlooked and even casually dismissed. Others other churches are too rigorous in their commitment to a no-divorce position that they fail to show any mercy toward those who are living in the pits of desperation with regard to their marriage. But we must be courageous enough to say what Jesus says. Divorce is not God's will. While at the same time, listening, empathizing with, and walking with a person whose marriage is breaking up in such a way that this person knows that we love them and that we are 
with them and that we want God's will for them. And we want to be actively involved in doing what Paul called every Christian to do with regard to others, and that is to bear one another's burdens. So we need to commend marriage. But finally, we need to avoid divorce. Divorce and remarriage decisions are not to be left to individuals, but require both pastoral leadership and congregational discernment. Now, I'm not saying here commending a church vote, but seeking the wisdom of brothers and sisters in the assembly. Proverbs 11.14 reminds us that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And divorce is certainly an area where such counsel is absolutely necessary. I want to offer a pastoral suggestion for all of us. Regardless of how rigorous a view you personally have of the possibility or permissibility of divorce, we all have the responsibility to support the persons, the people we know who are entangled in marriage problems and in potential divorce, as well as those who are currently in a single state due to their divorce. May it never be said of any of us that we did not support and love and give ongoing attention to those who suffer in difficult marriages or to those who have experienced a divorce or to those who are contemplating divorce as a way out. Our fundamental orientation toward those in marital distress who are contemplating divorce should be toward reconciliation of the husband and the wife. I think the gospel summons us to become peacemakers and agents of reconciliation because of the power of the unleashed spirit and the potency of a life of living potency of a life of living self of loving self-denial for the good of the other. Loving self-denial for the good of the other giving up my rights to love the other. While we seek to avoid divorce and following the words of Jesus, we must be willing to hear the exception that he offers as a concession to hard hearts. It may be that sexual immorality or abandonment of a, by an unsaved spouse results in grounds for divorce. Now, you may not see these texts in this way, but there are many godly interpreters who do. And it is incumbent upon us that we teach what we believe while at the same time trusting God's Spirit to so work in the hearts of His children that they obey God's Word in their good conscience as they study the Scriptures. If they decide to get a divorce, and by the way, I'm sure we all realize that there are many who have been divorced who did not want that divorce, who were divorced in this they have no-fault divorce, don't have a choice. But if we do know someone who has decided to get a divorce, please do not condemn them if they have sought out the wise counsel of others in making this decision. And even if they were not so wise in deciding to divorce, who are you to condemn them in the first place? Paul said that there is indeed for the Christian no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Now, he wasn't saying that that does not mean that we are to be discerning, that we are to make wise scriptural applications to all the people and situations that we are confronted with. But we need to remember to show mercy while upholding righteousness. There's one final question 
is someone who has had an impermissible divorce and has remarried, are they now living in a perpetual state of adultery? After all, as we looked at the text, we saw that someone who is divorced for the wrong reason commits, commits adultery, either the woman who has been divorced or someone who marries her. Well, no, I don't think that it is indeed the, the scriptural case here that someone lives in a perpetual state of adultery. I think it does mean that the consummation of remarriage is adulterous. But the couple should admit this, repent, and begin to live by God's standards. It certainly isn't the right answer to divorce again. Rather, stay married. You have not committed the unpardonable sin by remarrying. You can live for God and you can be used by Him in many, many ways. Well, I've sought here this morning to emphasize what I believe Jesus was emphasizing in these two verses. What is that? Support and affirm the beauty of marriage and avoid divorce. We've considered a difficult subject today and I trust that you are ready to heed the words of Jesus with regard to divorce. And as we pursue the truth together and seek to commend marriage as the honorable estate that it is, let us not fail to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There are far more words about this truth of unity in the New Testament than there are about divorce. So, affirm marriage. Avoid divorce in a spirit of love and unity as one body in Christ. Would you pray please with me? Father, we thank you for the words of our Savior and we thank you for the beauty of marriage which you instituted and which we are called to honor. I pray that as a congregation and as individuals in it that we will commend marriage and that we will seek to have marriages that show the, the love of Christ for his church. And Lord, as well, even as we seek to obey the words of Jesus in avoiding divorce, I pray that you would help us likewise to show love and compassion and care for any amongst us who have been divorced <clears throat> or who are even contemplating that situation even now. Lord, give us grace to be merciful and righteous in our interactions with one another as we seek to uphold this standard which you have placed before us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.